You had the chance to best him. Well, not be very sportsmanlike, now, would it? I was told unsportsmanlike conduct was a requirement for this game. Ah, fast learner you are indeed, Miss Sharma. <laughs> what do you say, my lord? Are you in a losing mood? My mood shall remain unchanged, regardless of your choice. Ah, is that so? You would bravely bear the crushing shame of defeat. Play pleasant, Didi. Not to worry, Miss Aguina. In light of my brothers and sisters' tactics, Miss Sharma conducts herself with much grace indeed. Huh. Then you shall not mind this. Hello everybody, my name is Bradley and welcome back to another episode of Let's Dive Deep where today we are still diving deep into the hit Netflix series Bridgerton by taking a good look at the third episode of season three entitled A Bee in Your Bonnet. As always, this show contains adult content, just like the show Bridgerton that we're talking about. You know, we've been a little unspicy so far compared to season one, but in this episode, we get characters kind of touching each other's bosoms a little bit. So if that's not something you want to watch or listen to me talk about or anything, or something you want to listen to but don't want your kids to listen to, make sure you're not playing this podcast around children. This show also does not contain any spoilers past the third episode of season two, A Bee in Your Bonnet. However, just a fair warning here, compared to season one, I have been spoiled on more stuff. I have seen little bits and pieces of the episodes ahead of this, so I will try my best to make sure that I am not spoiling anything. I have not watched farther ahead than this, but just with Twitter and Reddit and doing a podcast and algorithms and whatnot, I just see things from future episodes and I can't help it. And I'm not even, I'm not going to try and avoid it. I'm not going to delete Twitter off my phone just to avoid Bridgerton spoilers. So just be warned that if I seem a little clairvoyant in some of the things that I'm saying, it's because maybe I've seen or watched something from the future episodes just nonchalantly browsing the internet to, to do this podcast. And finally, you know what, we're three episodes in here. You guys don't need this stuff anymore, but I'm going to say it anyways. We have a Facebook group. You should join it. There's some good stuff that gets posted in there about Bridgerton and other pop culture things and other deep dives. We do other deep dives here at Let's Dive Deep. We got Harry Potter. We got Hamilton. I'm slowly, very slowly chugging away at The Witcher. There's a lot going on that you might want to check out. We also talk about things that we're not deep diving about in there. We have a Patreon that kind of helps pay for some of the hosting fees of the podcast and everything. And it's a way for you guys, if you're enjoying it, to, to give a little back to get a little extra i post all of the episodes early in there so if you just want to listen to the episodes a little earlier we've got show notes over at the patreon so feel free and go if that's something that interests you go and check that out and finally 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 triple finally please leave a five-star review or subscribe wherever you're listening to this. The best way to get podcasts out there is to tell somebody about them or to leave a good review somewhere, so please do that. But also, if you hit that subscribe button, it's really convenient. The next episode just pops in your feed, but also sometimes it auto-downloads it offline. So if you're getting off work, you don't want to use your data, bam, the new, the new deep dive is just there for you, and that way you don't have to wait for it or use your data. It's awesome. I think that's it. That's all, though. I think it's time to dive deep into Bridgerton. Dearest, I hate to see you like this. <laughs> so weighed down. Courtship, the consideration of a proposal, choosing the person you wish to spend the rest of your life with. My darling boy, <laughs> it should be a time full of joy. I'm content. Mm -hmm. I'm fulfilling my duty to this family, Mother. That is what takes precedence above all else. Just because you are dedicated to this family does not mean that there should be no room left for love, Anthony. Your father took his role as Viscount seriously, but he also loved deeply. I know that is what you want, too. I know that deep down, 
It is what you have always wanted. You're quite certain how well you know me. I know how sweet and earnest you were as a boy. Always with a kind word and a, and a joke. But then after your father died, a wall went up inside you as if love had become some, some weakness instead of your greatest strength. And that is not you. You deserve the feeling that I had the moment your father placed that ring on my finger. It was a promise, not just of the sacred commitment that we were making to one another, but a sacred love, Love shall too. have no place in my marriage. You cannot mean that. I seek an amiable partner with whom I may share a pleasant life, untouched by heartbreak and the ravages of grief. Today is a wonderful afternoon to be recording this podcast because for the first time in season two, I have alcohol to record the podcast. I have two tall cans of beer with me for this podcast recording. You guys listen to about an hour and a half of podcasts. It's actually about two and a half to three hours of recording, and then I kind of cut it together and everything. So I got, I got about a liter of beer to get me through this, so we'll see how that goes. I also listened to Olivia Rodrigo, uh, Good For You, just as like a pump-up song for this recording, so I am ready to go. Episode 203AB is... In your bonnet. Uh, evidently, there are more writers. I've been hearing around that it's not Chris Van Dusen who's writing all these episodes, but IMDb keeps saying it's Chris Van Dusen. So I'm going to keep saying it's Chris Van Dusen because IMDb is where I go to get this information. So if that's not true, I apologize to whoever wrote this episode. However, the director is Alex Pillai. This is a new director. I believe it was Trisha Brock for the first two episodes of this season. So Alex Pillai is in town. We'll see how he does. Spoiler alert, though, I think he does great because I really enjoyed this episode. This will be my highest rated episode of Bridgerton so far, I believe, if I'm getting my own ratings correct. I'm giving this one an 8.4, which should not surprise anyone who has listened to the instant kind of feedback bit in the Facebook group. I really enjoyed this episode. So this episode to me, I'm just liking the storyline more than season one. So I think on par, everything being equal, I, I think everything's equal to the, some of the best episodes of season one, but the storyline I'm enjoying more, which gives it that bump to, to 8.4. I think Bridgerton will probably struggle, struggle to get higher than 8.4. Remember with my kind of rating scale, it's harder to get to the next point one. I'm very hesitant to go over 8.5 in, in towards the nine range for anything. And so we'll, we'll see, but 8.4, I'm really confident that there for this episode and i'm gonna give my anthony score an 8.5 uh, i'm gonna talk about the flashbacks a lot we just get a lot of good character development from anthony in this episode and I, I enjoyed it a lot and and some of this stuff helped kind of retroactively explain some of his actions from season one and the first couple episodes of season two so my anthony score trending up higher than the episode score for the first time at an 8.5 there were so many things I liked about this episode. It's going to be hard to just talk about a couple of them at the top here. I'm going to start everything about the flashbacks, everything about them. They were all awesome. Flashbacks normally suck. I normally hate them. If you're flashing back, there's got to be a purpose. There's got to be a reason. There can't be too many of them. They have to contribute something to the story. And these flashbacks were excellent. I really enjoyed them, uh, not just for what they do for Anthony as a character and what they do to kind of explain his motivation and his actions, for the depth they give to some of the other characters in the show, but also that they were just well executed aside from their story implications so that was awesome the chemistry and dynamics so far with kate edwina and anthony just all three of them 
is, is great. What's great about this, and I talked about this in the instant feedback, is that I there is a world in which I would root for Anthony and Edwina, which I think is really important. We know that we're going to end up with Kate. We know the show's going there. We know that's going to happen. However, I need to I need to root for the first part so I feel the emotional damage when we get to that second part. Unlike season one, I'm going to bring up Lord Burbrook a lot because I think that was a low point in season one. But uh, similarly, I knew we weren't going to end up with Lord Burbrook, but I just didn't care because there's no world in which I would root for that and no world in which that was going to happen. So it didn't matter. However, I think in most worlds, Anthony and, Ed and Edwina actually happens. And it's Anthony, if, if Kate doesn't exist, I think in most situations, this thing with Kate is kind of so rare that it wouldn't happen often or be that replicatable. And I think in this Anthony Edwina situation, 98 times out of 100 is I think a number I threw out before, I'd be rooting for this relationship. It's pleasant, it's kind, it's fun. Is it true love? No, but like within this really silly social season type of fucking weird system, this relationship is pretty awesome, all things considered, and I'm enjoying it a lot. So I, I, I'm actually rooting for Anthony and Edwina a little bit here, which is not something I thought I'd be doing, but also uh, it's a huge credit to the show, and I, I really enjoyed it in this episode. This show is really good at giving us a lot of funny moments, a lot of side stories that are, you know, just humorous. The Harry Potter books are good at that too. Like, there's a lot of emotional, kind of serious things going on, and then you get these funny storylines or these funny little bits of, you know, uh, comedic acting and comedic writing with Benedict and the T and Colin and all of that this episode. It didn't take away from the episode. It kind of just added a little, a little bit of fun, a little bit of zest to it. And I really enjoyed that. That's a hard thing to do is to make those types of things not feel like, oh, like, do I need to be with Benedict in his dumb art school right now? Like, I want to get back to Kate and Anthony. But I enjoyed these little side stories again for the, the comedic value they, they brought. And the other thing I'm enjoying so far, and I'm going to wrap this up as like a first three episodes, what I'm enjoying enjoying type of thing but that I, I don't feel bad for suspending my disbelief Bridgerton is a show that you have to suspend your disbelief to enjoy I would say this kind of Regency romance as a genre is kind of like that as well and the the show's job is to convince me that it's okay to suspend my disbelief everything in the show is completely contrived there's so many situations that are just completely unreasonable that they would happen and so many problems could be solved with like two adults having a conversation with somebody just not interrupting another person and the to the show's credit, they're making me not care. I'm really picky about these kind of things, uh, and maybe there'll be things later on that, that kind of rub me the wrong way, but for now, I'm really just enjoying that I can suspend my disbelief and have fun with the show and not be like, oh, that situation would never happen, or oh, those two would never talk to each other in that way. I just get to be like, you know what? The show's fucking awesome. It's fun. I'm enjoying it. I get to have a glass of wine, watch my Bridgerton. It's really just a guilty pleasure. It's I haven't felt this way about a show since New Girl. I don't know if y'all have watched New Girl, but New Girl had that same feeling for me where I just never had to worry about suspending my disbelief for it. I could just grab a bottle of wine, lay in bed, turn it on, and just like guilty pleasure show my way through an entire evening. And that's how I feel with Bridgerton. I almost wish they released it week to week so that it would make it easier for podcasting. But if I wasn't podcasting about it, I would binge it all in one night and immediately get on a rewatch the next day. The show is awesome. I love it. And it's not making me feel bad about suspending my disbelief, which is hard to do because obviously someone who's prone to doing podcasts like this is someone who's probably pretty picky about their television. And it's just not bothering me so far. I'm going to say a thing I didn't like here. There's just one, and it's weird that the highest rated episode has more things I didn't like than the first one. In episode one, I said that, hey, I didn't miss Daphne and the Duke. 
I didn't miss them. They were like, which was shocking, by the way, because if you said, hey, this season's going to be about Anthony, you're going to love it. I'd be like, ah, but I kind of like Daphne and the Duke. That storyline was interesting. I was already kind of in on them. Do I really need to know more about Anthony? However, I'm really enjoying this Anthony storyline, and I kind of forgot that Duke even existed. However, in this episode, just with Daphne being around, but so competent, like Daphne is there and competent and completely unlike her season one self in a way that feels very natural, I think to see that growth with Daphne and like her married, married life, there's these little quotes like, oh, motherhood suits her and stuff. She's bringing little baby Augie around. It's just like, mm, we just need the Duke here. I know that they didn't put him in because he didn't want to come back or there was a contact contract dispute that he probably would have made these appearances if that hadn't happened. It's not like they wrote him out of the show on purpose. However, these little moments, like to see that growth to competency and kind of, you know, be taking the high road and being the better kind of sister than Anthony was, seeing that with the Duke there as well would have been better. And, and I'm not holding it against the show. I'm not going to knock off score for it because it's not the show's fault that, that he's not back, I don't think. However, it's just something I missed in this episode a little bit was I just missed the Duke, not because I need him, the actor there, or because I need him to have a storyline, but it just kind of, I need to see a little bit more of Daphne's kind of growth into this competent kind of, old, not older sister, but competent kind of, I know about marriage and love role. And if I could see her with her kid, with her husband, kind of doing that in real time, it would make it a little better for me. So just a small nitpick. I know I haven't missed the Duke so far and I don't need like more Duke and Daphne, like sex scenes to Taylor Swift songs and all that stuff. None of that. Just his presence, like just one day of filming where he was just around would have helped the immersion a little bit for me. So small nit to pick, but I'm going to say it here uh, just because I did feel it a little bit in this episode. I'm going to start off this episode here with the scene by scene recap on a little bit of a downer, but don't worry. I don't feel down about it at the moment. So you don't need to either. However, uh, I lost my father, not in a similar way to Anthony, but at a adjacently similar time in my life, not quite as old as Anthony is meant to be in this episode, but not like super young either where I, I don't remember anything like Gregory would have, or, you know, maybe even Colin would have or anything like that. Uh, so I will be talking about that experience because it's how I relate to the show. Uh, there's a a lot of things about these flashbacks that that don't apply to me obviously i was never a viscount or anything however there's a lot that does so i just want to put a little like trigger warning at the top if if talking about lost parents or parents that have passed away is something that's uncomfortable for you or something you don't want to talk about uh, unlike episode six of last season i can't really save it all for the end because these flashbacks are, are so important that they happen where they do so i will be talking about it i just want to give the warning at the top so you don't continue with this deep dive if it's going to upset you or anything. But we start with a flashback with Anthony's father. And we know that he is not alive in the current time. So we don't know yet if we're getting this kind of death scene. Or if we're just getting a little bit of um, kind of backstory on Anthony here. I want to shout out the de-aging a little bit. He looked good. Anthony looked good. His, his wig and his makeup and everything. And the way they kind of screened it and changed the colors and stuff. Looked really good. It, it looked like a younger Anthony in a way that's not weird, like the younger kind of Luke Skywalker does in some of the new Star Wars TV stuff. Uh, and so I enjoyed that. You know, Jonathan Bailey, he played younger quite well, and they made him look good. They're talking about deer. He's out hunting with his dad. The brothers aren't around. You know, we don't want to be bullied by Colin and Benedict and stuff. And his dad is talking about deer, but also, like, not talking about deer at all. Uh, he says some things that are pretty profound, like, it, it takes one clean shot to the heart to fell the giantest of beasts, or whatever he says, which is, which is fair enough. 
And then he says something like, and then Anthony misses and worries about being bullied by his brother. And then his dad shoots a, another deer and it's like, you have to teach me how to do that. It's crazy. And then his, the Papa Bridgerton says something wild. Like, it's really about confidence, isn't it? Like, you, you said that, that you thought that deer was too big to shoot before you even got to it. And then I thought in my head, is it really about confidence though? I'm not a hunter. But there's a few things that are important here, like, you know, not scaring the animal. That's pretty important. Uh, aiming your gun. Aim is pretty important. These are all things that I feel like contribute just as much as confidence. I'm not saying confidence isn't important. I'm just saying, you know, this show is not a referendum on the hunting skill and, like, the attributes required to do that. Although, I don't think it's all about confidence, like it's being portrayed <laughs> in this show. But, hey, you know what? I'm not a hunter. I have no desire to go out into the woods shooting animals animals and so maybe i've got it wrong maybe it is a big confidence thing we get a little bit of a that stopwatch that anthony has so we get a little bit of like hey anthony got has his dad's stopwatch now that's a little bit interesting just a little throwaway scene there his dad his dad continues with these profound kind of romance lines that they have to put all into these one this is the part where it's like i'm so glad that i can just not suspend my disbelief or that i can suspend it because this this is just like too obviously too much about love and not at all about hunting you can't he says something about you can't you can't allow people to see you at your best if you can't show them your worst or something, which is just the most cliched, like, 2022 thing to say, uh, which is crazy. And then, and then we get the tragedy. Things drop real quick, and it's really adorable, the situation, because they're picking flowers for mom, right? Like, oh, mom would really love these flowers and stuff. And, and that's so, it's so, it's cute that they're growing the flowers that she likes in their garden, like, right by their door. This is right by the house. That's adorable. And he's like, it's such a, Man, it's such a small thing to pick those flowers and walk them 25 feet into the house, but he still does it. No, She can walk out here anytime and look at them, but that's not what he's about. He's going to pick them and bring them in. Man, this guy is awesome. And then the bee comes and stings them, and it gets them right in the throat. And it, I, I don't know exactly how anaphylaxis works, but I'm assuming that there is some part of proximity that's important as well. And getting that like right to the throat and having that be the first spot that swells is not ideal. They obviously don't have EpiPens in this time. And Anthony, like I'm sure allergies and anaphylaxis and whatnot isn't a well-known thing at this point in time. So Anthony's freaking out and acts this really well. And he has no idea what's going on. So he's just yelling for help. And of course, just tragically or or not maybe 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 it's the best of all the possible people um mama bridgerton violet comes out and, and and understands what's happening and just starts oh man just starts crying and trying to fix him and save him and it's it's all just so tragic it was actually a little bit hard to watch at some points and then and then what happens next is like in the middle of this like shock and grief kind of all happening at the same time all of the kids come outside. Everyone's trying to figure out what, what's happening. This is a loud, kind of very worrying situation that's happening right by the house. And Violet has to like yell at Anthony like, look, you gotta go. He's immediately put in charge. And we're gonna see more of this later where I'm gonna talk a little bit more about kind of my experiences and stuff. But like you're you're just immediately put in charge of things, right? Like there's a role that you need to play here and you need to go do it now, 30 seconds after your father has died, you need to go to the house and like shield the children from what they're seeing right now. And that is just like, 
Like this is heartbreaking. It get it gets worse for him, but even just this little bit of trauma is almost enough to explain exactly why Anthony feels the way he does about everything, and it's just so well done, so well acted, so well kind of placed in this episode to give us a lot of good um kind of backstory on Anthony. Man, this was hard to watch, which which is meant to be. So just well done to everyone involved in this cuz this this just fucking sucks. Like an episode of Bridgerton you're you're opening it to be like like you know just kind of transported into this fake romantic world for a little bit and to get this is just like oof just right into the heart you feel it it's heavy it's it's difficult and, and i i just i like that I, I liked how well done it was and i i really i felt it i felt it for sure back in real time some of our favorites are on their way to the bridgertons we got lady danbury and the three sharmas in what has to be the normal kind of alpha move to 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 this is the reverse reverse uno card right like kate's lining people up to block anthony and anthony's like all right kate you know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna invite your entire family to my to my you know estate in the countryside for a week before this giant ball that we're hosting out here and what are you gonna do about that kate which just to me is just like an awesome move also has to be the number one Viscount move. If you have like a, a countryside estate, this has to be the, I want to spend time with you and I think I'm going to propose. So why don't we come and hang out for a week at my country estate away from the limelight? In this too, uh, Kate has seemingly agreed to not be mean to Anthony. We'll see how this goes. Uh, we should all pass the week with open minds is a quote that Lady Danbury throws out. And, and Kate says like she'll be the 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 bastion of M M amiability or whatever she says. It's like, okay, Kate, I'm sure this is going to go super smooth. Uh, I'm sure this is going to be, there's no problems. I can actually stop watching the show because him and Edwina are just going to get married and you're not going to be involved anymore and things are going to be great. Over at the Featheringtons, we got some hilarious shit happening over here. <laughs> Penelope is mildly worried about the Modiste because at the end of last episode, she was seen. So we'll see how that goes. But it's good to catch us up a little bit. Like, yeah, Penelope knows what happened. She's a little worried. This is new ground for her. Uh, Mama Featherington is there being like, all right, we don't want this guy to marry this ditzy, you know, lady who's going to come in here and know how to run a household and displace me. And she seems to think they're going to get kicked out on the streets or something, which is just not what's going to happen. So she, I think she's exaggerating a little bit. But she essentially kind of a summary of the whole situation is that she says we need to find a dumb, naive kind of idiot girl who knows nothing about running a household, who has no money, who, who's just who, like all of that stuff. And then... <laughs> Prudence walks in the room and she goes, Prudence, you're perfect for this job. And what I like about that is she kind of comes across as just like super ruthless to the point where she is fully aware about how impressionable and silly and dumb her daughter is, which is like partly her doing. We had this whole season one where none of these people get told anything about like life and how it's going to work and what you're meant to do and all of this stuff. And so, you know, it's partly her fault that Prudence is just like la-di-da, like monkey with the tambourines in her brain. Uh, this is partly her fault. Yet she's like, you know what? This worked out. My daughter has no clue what's going on ever. And this is going to be perfect, which I think is just a hilarious turn of events for the Featheringtons. And then she says we need to go to the Modiste to make something more tempting. And then Prudence says, tempting for what? And I... I'm not going to rehash season one, but can we teach these people what sex is? They're going to find out. This is, I hate this in 2022 as well, when people are like, rah, rah, we shouldn't teach kids about things. 
because it's not for children. And there's an element of that that's true. There is a time and a place and an age and all of that where you should teach people certain things, right? That, that, that process is true. However, just wholesale saying nobody should learn about X thing until they're adults is mind-bogglingly stupid. That is a terrible way to educate people because they're going to find out. It is inevitable. And if they're going to find out about something, you should, you have all the control here, right? Like, you, like it's just weird to me. Like, you, mm, it just bugs me. I hate it. I get it for this show. This feels really true to the time, but it's just like triggering me a little bit because this bothers me so much in 20, in 2022, if you're listening to this, turning red just came out. Uh, so turning red is a, a very well done kind of animated movie. And uh, I am tangentially a kind of aware of the situation where it kind of teaches children about puberty a little bit. And then everyone on Twitter, not everyone, uh, a minority of people on Twitter are like freaking out that we shouldn't teach children about puberty or whatever. And it's like, why? What do you mean? That makes no sense. You know why? Because they're going to find out about it and it's going to happen to them. This is inevitable. There's a 100% chance that this situation is going to happen to them. So we can teach them about it because it's going to happen to them. Oh, it just makes me so grumpy. So I'm not going to rehash season one. It's definitely enhancing the show, not taking away from it. But if you want to see me get like frustrated on the screen, just just bring up anything like this. And I'm just immediately going to be like, burger, like get off my lawn type of person. Oh, it's so frustrating. We arrive at Aubrey Hall and it's just gorgeous. I like how fucking fuck you rich these people are. They've got their nice giant manor homes in London. But ostensibly, I think they spend... I'm not using the word ostensibly correctly there. I think the way this works is they only spend the social kind of summer season in London doing the social season. I think they spend most of their time out here at Aubrey Hall, like 10 months, 9, 10 months out of the year. And this is how they make their money. Like, obviously, there's something growing in Aubrey Hall and whatever, like... They have work to do for the other times of the year, I suppose, and that's how they're making all their money. So they clearly spend a lot of time here, but it, it would be unusual, I think, for them to spend time here in the summer, which also makes it weird that there's like an annual ball out in the country if all these people spend all of their winter time in the country. Anyways, Daphne's here for a family tradition. This family tradition is hilarious because we learn it's Pall Mall, and I have siblings and we are very competitive, and Pall Mall fucking rules. I wish I was fuck you rich, not because I would spend my money like going to outer space or anything, but because me and my family and my friends would purchase a giant manor home somewhere in England and play Pall Mall every day of the summer, and I would win and I would lose, and I would go through those ups and downs, and we would all have a fantastic time. And there also definitely would be a mallet of death. That is the most, it sounds silly that is probably the most realistic part of this whole episode there are some hilarious moments with the bridgerton siblings everyone's got like a, a little bit of a, a funny line here eloise is the best with <laughs> eloise come see the baby has it changed since i last saw the baby just just oh got a good chuckle out of me that was hilarious uh daphne is surprised a little bit to find out that anthony has invited somebody to the house like whoa where is this new Anthony? What have you done with the old Anthony? Which is interesting. She's excited to meet the person that has captured his heart. And she also says that she'll be uh, as much help to Anthony as he was to her last season, which, if you remember, was no fucking help at all. And he he knows this and realizes it, and that has like the comeback line: "Is that like a threat, or is that is that a is that actual help, or is that a threat?" And Daphne's just the facial acting. Uh, Phoebe never. 
I don't know how to pronounce her her last name, but she kills it. She does not have a lot of screen time so far after three episodes, but every second on the screen, she is killing it, which is awesome. Daphne is, is hilarious, and it's just so funny. They make the Bridgerton children interactions fun, which is so awesome, because they could easily be boring and drab and make me not, like... They could easily be the thing I like least about the show, and they're just such fun little interludes between all the plot lines to just catch up with all the Bridgertons in their whatever room they're all in just to see how they feel about everything, and it, it never fails to, to impress. It never disappoints. The Sharmas arrive at Aubrey Hall, and I'm... <laughs> <laughs> we we meet the, there's some introductions going on and, and kate already is just like she's clearly just I, she doesn't know i don't think that she's all in on anthony yet but the way she looks at the manor home and you can see in the back of her eyes she's imagining what her life would be like she she's kind of looking at it and going man edwina's gonna live a whole life here she's pretty much the heart eyes emoji for this whole situation which is interesting because there is two parts to this one of the parts to this is is liking Anthony for whatever reason she likes Anthony, right? We're not exactly clear on those reasons right now. I'm not exactly clear on what they are. Part of it must be that they're just, there's something kind of sexy and attractive about this kind of fake competition that they're in with each other, right? But part of it too is you get to live the life of a Viscountess. You get to marry one of the most eligible bachelors. You get everyone's adoration, presumably. You get to live in this nice manor home for most of the year, and you get to be in charge of the home. I'm pretty sure how it works is that like once Anthony marries, Lady Bridgerton is kind of displaced as the, the leader of the household who organizes all the balls and does everything and all of that stuff. And so it's a pretty good gig. And I think Kate with this with this look here, it, she Simone Ashley's a wonderful actress because I get the sense that like it in this moment it's not about Anthony. In this moment, it's kind of like a wow. Like she's kind of realizing in this moment that this is more than just Anthony, that there's a whole other thing you get with this marriage, and that thing is attractive to her in a way. And it's just very subtle kind of acting with the eyes that I really enjoyed. And maybe I'm reading too much into it, but I immediately noted it down. It stuck out like a sore thumb to me, just how good this facial acting was. And then there's the hilarious moment when Anthony kind of blocks the view, and she says, I was enjoying that view, and now you're blocking it. It's like, okay, Kate, because Anthony is, because there's no way, it's just like a dumb comment. Like, there's no way you can view this giant-ass Aubrey Hall and the surrounding millions of acres or whatever, because Anthony is standing 10 feet in front of you. Like, okay, Kate, yeah, whatever. Just taking digs for the sake of taking digs. We'll, we'll allow it. We'll allow it in this case. There's also this awesome moment with Daphne where she knows immediately that it's Kate that Anthony truly wants, for whatever reason, right? Because he's talking to Kate, and there's something about the way they're talking to each other and bickering and, and kind of throwing japes at each other. I think this is where uh, Kate's comment about you blocking the view comes up. And Daphne immediately goes, you must be Edwina. And that the I don't know if she uses the word must, but that's how I've written it down. Like, just to be so sure of it, to be so sure that this has to be Edwina, that there's no doubt in her mind that Kate could not be Edwina says so much about how Daphne is perceiving the situation and nobody else is perceiving it correctly. And there's these little bits of writing. I know people, okay. I know people like to dunk on Bridgerton. A lot of people in my life are like, why on earth would you podcast about Bridgerton? It's just like, it's just a period romance. Like, why do you care so much? It's like, man, I think it is. And that's true. And you do have to suspend your disbelief to enjoy it. However, there are so many little bits that are just so amazing about it. 
And these little bits of dialogue, these little glances and everything all add up. Like The emotional math adds up to me, and it's just perfect how these little interactions are happening here. Anthony goes to ask Mama Bridgerton for her ring, which I love as a tradition. This is super cute that you actually use like the same ring and it gets passed down and stuff. That's awesome. I love that. I'm not sure if Papa Bridgerton was still alive, if he'd be able to use the ring, because obviously Mama Bridgerton would still be using it as her wedding ring, question mark. But I like that this little tradition with the rings is a thing. Mama Bridgerton, though, I don't understand her. I don't know actually why I didn't put this in a thing I didn't like. Maybe it's just not actually bothering me. But on a scene-by-scene -scene basis, it kind of seems like her motivations are just whatever they need to be for the scene. Because here, she's like, now, now, Anthony, there's no need to hurry. And it's like, wait a second, what do you mean? Now, I, it's possible what she's saying is that, like, hey, we've got three days. And in this weird fucking system, that's a ton of time. Or now, now, don't worry, we've got, you know, two months until the summer's over. No need to worry. And maybe I'm just, my perception of hurrying is different because of how long kind of relationships and engagements are in kind of my time frame in 2022. And then Anthony, even funnier, after Mama Bridgerton says, yeah, you can take some time to get to know each other. Just dead, deadpan, just no emotion. That's not necessary. It is not necessary to know each other. What would I want to know about her? She will make a great Viscountess. It's like, okay, Anthony. Yeah, there's no reason to even... In this in this sense, I agree with Mama Bridgerton. Like, there's no need. Like, you have three days to propose. Don't, don't waste those first two getting to know her. What could possibly happen? Like, this is ridiculous. Like, come on, Anthony. Like, even if you only have three days, propose at the end of those three days. Maximize your time. Be sure. You know, just be double check. Ask her quite like, have you ever murdered somebody? The answer is probably no. We can assume she hasn't. But let's let's ask that question. Like, let's, let's ask some questions. Just just double check that she's not actually a terrible, awful, awful person. Because we can infer that, but we don't actually know that. We, we can do a little bit more research here over these three days. So I agree with Mama Bridgerton, but her motivations are strange to me because she's only ever wanted Anthony to get fucking married. So now it's not all of a sudden it's not a hurry and we need to take our time. Uh, weird, but I agree with her. We then get kind of put back in time with Anthony in another flashback in the direct aftermath of his father kind of dying seemingly hours later, question mark, but it seems like the same day. And he is the Viscount now. There is no time difference. The second the father dies, you are now the Viscount. It's very much like a royal family in that way. The second the royal dies, you are instantly the king or queen. There's no time to prepare. There's no time to do a debrief. There's no time to like look through some logs or anything to, to get caught up on where the situation's at. You are just in charge now. And being in charge means being in charge. There is no, you're not half in charge. This isn't a, you know, there's no system by which you get a little bit of help along the way. You just go from not at all being in charge. You are not the Viscount. Your father is the Viscount. And three hours later, your father's dead. You're going through that trauma and you are in charge. And that is just so hard to watch on the screen and there's a lot of like he's got to deal with the preparations for the funeral there's the letters of notice he has to notify everyone else that his father has died because there are people in this village that they're they're responsible for and you know i suppose all the other families need to know the the royal family probably needs to know that he is now the viscount as i assume this is a, like an appointed system like it gets appointed to someone and follows their line but can be retracted at any time i'm sure so that needs to be followed. We need to get the cat. Like, how heartbreaking that, like, you are immediately in charge of your father's casket. Like, just fuck me. Like, this is, this is hard to watch. And then, kind of strangely, this one seems a little bit 
weird but acts really well as the defining moment they ask about the rooms and this is the one where he he's been really distant for the rest of these like yeah yeah yeah, yeah like sure yeah do whatever right he's just he's not able to be in the moment because obviously he's traumatized and panicking and sad and and trying to like emotionally go through this all and they said why why would my mother change rooms why would we do that and then the guy says because they're yours dude like you are the viscount now now right now in this moment you do not get this chance to 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 grieve or to do anything you are in charge and those rooms are for whoever's in charge and that's you now so your mom's got to get out of there and of course, I'm assuming Anthony ends that scene with like, no, leave her where she is. But it is interesting that like, that's where these people are at. The other people around him also are assumingly grieving a little bit, but they are all business. Like, hey, man, there's a system and this system must be followed. And you are now the Viscount and you get the fucking Viscount's rooms. Like your mom is no longer the wife of the Viscount. So she's getting kicked out. And that is just like, not only do you have to deal with all of these kind of huge issues like the preparations and the letters of notice and all of these things that are immediately important you got to deal with this trivial shit like who's like sleeping arrangements like there's no end to it for anthony and it's just so heartbreaking to watch and it's just digging deeper into why he is the way he is and it it makes perfect sense and i put in my notes what a moment like you are the viscount now i think the thing with the rooms was like a little bit less serious than the other ones but i think it was the best thing to put there in terms of you know letting us know what the stakes of being the viscount are but also like having that you are the viscount moment this belongs to you now. It's like, oh, just so well done. Outside in the yard, it is time for Pall Mall, which is the old-timey Regency era fuck you rich person's way of playing croquet. And I just want to point out, we talked about it in episode two. Y'all probably didn't even want to know about it, but like this is all just so attractive to me. Like Pall Mall, just the sexiest thing that's happened on Bridgerton. Uh, it, it, I don't know... I think because of the direct situation, it's slightly less sexy than the horse betting kind of sports stats t- talk in the last episode, but this is doing it for me. If you want me to be in on your romance show, having it kind of, you know, come out through competitive sport is the way to my heart. There's a lot of really funny things in this intro to Paul Mall here. Kate seems really in on it, like, ah, you know, a smart player plays the player, not the game. And so she's like, yeah, I can fuck up Anthony real good in Paul Mall. And the way the Bridgertons make it sound like this is super serious. They play, they make it sound like they play exactly one time a year. They have one game of Pall Mall. No one practices. No one uses the equipment at all. There's one game in a year. And then that's the, which is ridiculous. Cause of course they must play every afternoon. What else are you going to do in the summer on your biggest state when you're around? But yeah, they play one game of Pall Mall every year and this is so important to all of them it's so important that daphne has like the tactics down like hey colin will get you when you're least expecting it and eloise only cares about beating her older brothers anthony will <laughs> beat you to death with the club i guess if you pick his club or whatever <laughs> and like and the kate just relishes that like oh, okay i'm here i don't even need to be good at this game because i don't care about winning but i can fuck with anthony and that's just a great motivation that i find very attractive and i like that Daphne knows everything. She seems like the right sibling to kind of be above the fray. And and she says, I'm not going to tell you my secrets, but here are all the secrets of the Bridgertons. Here's what I've gathered in my Sherlock Holmesian uh, Paul Mall playing days over the last couple of years. And I, I just enjoyed that moment for the siblings. It makes them seem like real siblings that hang out with each other. 
instead of just like fake TV siblings. We're at the Modiste now, and oh, <laughs> this scene is wild. Everything with this whole prudence situation is wild. They talked earlier about marrying your cousin and how that's not weird, it's regal. And I will say there's a big difference marrying your, your direct cousin rather than your fourth cousin. I think that's, that's enough cousins away that I don't know if we're supporting it, but it's certainly not as bad. So there, there is a spectrum here slightly, I'd say, but it's still very weird. <laughs> she says, look at the royal family. It's kind of regal, cool. So we need to go to the Modiste to make Prudence attractive for the thing that we're not going to tell her about. And they keep wanting a lower bust on this dress. Like they keep wanting the bosom to be more visible, which is ridiculous. These dresses are already very bosomy. I don't think I'm not an expert on the situation here, but if I lived in the Regency era, if you were trying to attack, attract my attention to your bosom, I think the dress is already doing that. I don't know if you need to do the fanning stuff. I don't know if you need to like get the dress even lower cut. I think this whole situation is already designed for pretty maximum bosom, you know, uh, appearance. Like I think that's already happening. But lady. Uh, or the modiste, no, she's not a lady in, in like formal terms. The modiste is like, wait a second, wait a second, wait, 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 no, this is a classy modiste. We don't make these low cut, you know, disreputable dresses here. Like, what are you talking about? And then Featherington has an awesome line where she says, I don't pay you to, oh, what does she say? I don't pay you something like i don't pay you to tell me how to make your dresses i just pay you to make them the way i want them which is hilarious because the featheringtons have so far been always broke and there was a whole storyline last season about them not paying the modiste but that's that was just hilarious to me and then there's a new modiste from vienna across the street which fair enough they're going to go to the new modiste and this modiste might have more kind of might be more open to to making the bosom slightly flashier in her dresses so they're going to head over there Penelope, though, and the Modiste have an awesome moment where Penelope is freaking out. Nicola Coughlin, who is Irish, by the way. I did Google this. She is Irish. She's on Dairy Girls, which I've never watched Dairy Girls, so I didn't know that. Uh, however, she is Irish. I was correct earlier, so the accent thing makes sense. That must be fun for her. And she she play acts like freaking out a little bit really well. She's like, yeah, I um, I, I lost my dress and needed to borrow my maid's dress while running around the weird market in like the slums of London, which is like, okay Penelope that's checking out that's a that's an alibi that no one's gonna question and the Modiste has an awesome answer to this and this is the way the society kind of should be look man a lady's business is her own you don't ask me any questions about my business I'm not gonna ask you questions about yours we're ladies you know girls we run the world men suck like let's not let's not let this come between us you're doing your thing I'm doing my thing we don't need to let this come between us which is a refreshing take from the Modiste and something I enjoyed a lot Back at Pall Mall, this continues to just be an absolute joy. I, I watched an interview with Chris Van Dusen where he said that Pall Mall was like a big thing in the books and, and, and something that the book readers really enjoyed. And so I, I'm not a book guy. I haven't read the books. And I also believe that adaptations are adaptations. The books are the books. The show is the show. Like they're, they're based on each other but aren't the same just because portraying it is very different. And there's way more strict kind of requirements to make a TV show than just, you know, you can write down literally anything you can imagine. Um, but I hope, and I sincerely hope that the people who've read the books enjoyed the Pall Mall, because I think this is a true highlight of the episode, of all the episodes of Bridgerton we got so far. I don't know how much more fun it could have been in the books, but it's just a delight to watch on the screen. And maybe I'm predisposed to it as like a sports ball kind of guy. But man, I, if you enjoyed this in the books, I can't imagine it being much better, because this is awesome. 
they have this argument over the mallets, which is just, again, it's like we had this argument as kids with hockey sticks. I'm Canadian, by the way, so we play a lot of ice hockey. And this is how it would go. Like your mom would just buy you a bunch of hockey sticks and one would be better than the other. And then your brothers and you would have to argue over the best one. And like this just all making sense to me here. <laughs> Anthony is trying. All of these people are like trying to fuck with each other because this game is mostly about fucking with each other. But they're also trying to be amiable as kate said earlier in the episode so uh they have this argument about who chooses the mallets hilariously the the old system you anthony's advocating for alphabetical order which is like fuck you anthony you're you're it's nice to say alphabetical order when you're the a sibling in a family that's named in alphabetical order so i suppose oldest to youngest is the exact same system and that's at least a little less you know on the nose um but daphne here with the the reasonable take that our guests should pick the mallet so edwina picks hers it's like a pretty pink or blue or whatever <laughs> and then kate's going for the black mallet and we learn this is the mallet of death and colin says wait wait wait, wait. what do you mean you're just gonna let her have that mallet you near threatened to beat the shit out of me and he, anthony has to look over and be like you exaggerate like just very much like hey shut the fuck up right now hey colin hey colin guess what i'm trying to marry one of these two people and i've already given you the download that you need to help me endear myself to the other sister so if you could shut the fuck up right now about me trying to beat a death of the mallet that would be awesome so that whole situation was a very true to life for me awesome but also just made a lot of sense with the 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 pre-knowledge we have that Colin is meant to be on his best behavior and not antagonizing anybody. Kate makes an awesome, if kind of overly sexual joke for, and you know what, to be fair, we don't know what they're teaching people in India. Maybe Kate and Edwina are just more aware of sex than the other uh, Bridgertons might be because of the, the two differences in culture, and I'm not aware of the other culture. Um, but it, it seemed like a, a joke that might be, you know, slightly sexual in nature. Possibly not, though. But something about a, a man not being as good with his familiar tools. Like, okay, perfect, Kate. Just like, let's, let's just like, take the spear put it into Anthony's stomach and then just keep twisting it. Why don't we? This is where I realize this is also just like a, a stupid fuck you rich person's game. And Daphne has an awesome line up to Anthony. Like are the demands of the day affecting your performance brother? And Anthony has to be like, no, not at all. They're definitely not affecting my performance. I'm only losing this game because I want to lose this game. And this whole dynamic is just super fun. Benedict and Colin have an aside and Benedict's applied for art school and he's super nervous about getting in, which is, yeah, what's interesting is that they are, I guess, and we don't actually know this, but theoretically, one of the richest, most prestigious families in all of England, you would think the art schools would be like pining for a Bridgerton. Now, maybe the art schools aren't really in on the aristocracy of it all, but you would think the the Bridgertons are famous. They're well known. They're a rich, wealthy, but also pretty kind family. Like these aren't these not these aren't your normal obnoxious rich assholes. In in the same way that other families are, on the grand scheme of things, they are. But they're not as bad as some of the other families. You would think that any art school would be proud, like not proud maybe, but like at least love the notoriety of having a Bridgerton apply to your art school. So it's a little weird to me that Benedict's worried about getting in because of course he's gonna get in. But hey. Benedict's applying for art school. That's good for him. It's a nice little storyline. Eventually, we're getting a season about Benedict, so he's going to have to do something, and he, he likes being an artist, and this makes perfect sense for his character.
Lady Danbury for three episodes in a row is milking every single line reading. Uh, she's coaching Edwina or whoever in Palmal and just yells, send it really loudly, but also comes back to the mamas section and says, you know, they're off to a slow start, but there'll be some bloodshed. Yeah, like she's out for, she wants the knives out. She wants there to be bloodshed on the Palmal pitch, which is just uh, hilarious. And then the mamas have a weird conversation where they like bond over their dead husbands, which I find to be weird kind of you know brunch talk over a game of palm all however what it does do and you know pretty seamlessly gives us the exposition about how long lady mary's been away and kind of the circumstances slightly we already know why we know through kate and uh, lady danbury about the the sheffield's kind of plan with the money so far so we know why they're all back. We're not really sure about Lady Mary yet, though, and if she has any personal feelings about being here. And this kind of seamlessly lets her come into the fold a little bit without having her own another storyline to, to, to flow off into. Over at Palmall, everyone seems to be uh, having a good time except Edwina. There's this awesome moment, <laughs> this first moment here, where everyone is kind of going around and, and Anthony's like, you know what, Kate? You know what, normally normally you're a bit of an asshole, but you've been playing this game with, with, with much grace indeed. And Kate responds to this by fucking launching his ball into, <laughs> into oblivion, onto Mars or something. They just launches it into the forest. And Anthony has to do his, again, these, the, the whole dynamic here is that they're pretending not to be mad when they're really fiercely competitive. And so Anthony trying to hold in just how mad he is that he's going to lose this game because Kate launched his ball into the forest is awesome. Edwina isn't really vibing with it. She's not loving Palm All. She kind of knocks her ball too far, misses the wicket, and it's in the bush. And Daphne has this awesome moment where she's like, hey, you know what? You can still play. Just go grab it. We'll, we'll kind of continue playing if you want to stay in the game. And she's like, you know what? Nah, Palm All's not for me. I'm going to go sit with the mamas, have a lemonade. And Anthony has to, Anthony, who wants to keep playing this game, who is fiercely competitive, has to have his moment where he, he's kind of prodded into going over and being like, hey, you know what? Like, I'll come with you. I'll come sit with you. This isn't how I wanted this to go, but I'm trying to I'm trying to woo you, trying to make you swoon a little bit. So we'll we'll see what happens here. And Edwina, who is genuinely now she is in theory hamming it up a bit. She wants this marriage too, so she's trying to be as nice as possible. But says like, hey, you know what? I'm gonna go get my lemonade. I'm gonna go get a refreshment. Don't don't let me spoil your fun on my account which is just a pleasant attitude for someone to have in this world. And also why I kind of root for Anthony and Edwina a little bit. This seems like a healthy relationship. Like, hey, you're having fun. I'm not having fun. This doesn't need to be a barrier between us. You keep having the fun with the thing you find fun. I'm going to go do something I find fun. And maybe Palm Mall isn't the thing we bond over. And this just feels kind of healthy and kind and nice. And we continue with... Um, Palm all though, and Kate and Anthony just keep looking at each other like they're they're just all like I'm I'm not it's hard to know at what point they like fall in love with each other versus like are just kind of impressed with each other and find each other attractive. But Daphne is just onto them, is kind of looking around and sees these little looks between them, and it, it, it's just it's just kind of hilarious. And this kind of happens because Colin, <laughs> Colin, who sneaks up when you're not expecting it, if you were listening to Daphne earlier, just launches <laughs> launches uh, Kate's ball, her palm ball, into the same part of the forest as Anthony's, which is really it's really funny and also just a complete plot contrivance. Because like, guess what's gonna happen? Anthony and Kate have to walk into the forest together. And go behind the bushes and stuff and you know no one's gonna be there chaperoning which is just this is where you have to suspend your disbelief but also this is just hilarious and fun and i'm here for it 
over on the one muddy part of the entire Bridgerton estate, this whole thing is so contrived, it's amazing. And I loved every second, by the way. I'm not saying this to take a dig at the show. This shit is awesome. It's why we love Bridgerton. You know, the, the Pall Mall balls are right next to each other in the one elevated part of this one muddy area in the entire Bridgerton estate that's also conveniently behind all these bushes and trees that no one else can see behind, which also brings so many questions to me about how this honor system works. Like, are you, there's so much made about how you're not allowed to be alone with people. You always need to have chaperones. Like, what are the loopholes here? What are the rules? Like, are they allowed to go in the context of a game of Pall Mall? Are you allowed to go kind of around and hang out with each other, right? Like, is that okay? Are they allowed to? It's just weird to me that they're just allowed to frolic about behind the bushes into a giant mud puddle and no one asks any questions. But also there's no scene at the end of this where the two of them come back covered in mud. They're covered in mud, and we never get a scene, or at least we haven't yet at the end of this episode, where someone's like, hey, wait a second. Did they, did they, did they bone down in the mud? Right? Did they, at the very least, did they have, like, a wrestling match? Were they fighting? Like, what happened that they're both covered in mud? Did they just explain it away by being like, ah, you see, one of the balls got stuck in the mud, and then I got stuck in the mud, and Anthony had to pull me out, but he's bad at that, and so I pulled him into the mud and then we laughed a whole bunch and it was really cute and sexy and then we got up and like what i don't know what the rules are it's hilarious and i love this scene but the rules of like honor and when you can be alone with people are just weird to me because it seems like anthony and kate spend an awful lot of time alone together in a society where that is specifically not allowed we get some really awesome moments between the two though and and, and I, I know i like to make fun of the show and that's part of the charm of the podcast is that i'm kind of you know you know, the show doesn't take itself too seriously. I'm not taking the show too seriously. But there is a lot of good stuff here. First off, this idea that Anthony... The whole kind of attraction between Anthony and Kate is that they... I suppose, at least so far, is that they kind of dislike each other. They're kind of enemies and there's something... There's something kind of interesting about that in the sense that they've never met anyone like the other or that they haven't... What's the phrase I'm trying? They haven't ever been in this situation where they have feelings for someone who's not following the rules in, in quotation marks. And so when he sees Kate just walk into the mud with her dress, with her shoes, with everything, which like, he knows must be expensive and must be brand new because everyone gets a new dress for everything in this world. He is positively shocked. Like he cannot believe she's doing this to the point where when she says, are you going to come hit your ball? Like, are you worried about your boots? He snaps back at her. This is not like, ah, you think I'm worried about my boots, Kate? No, 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 no. I'm Anthony Bridgerton and I don't care. Like, he is like, oh boy. Like, oh, like he's like, no, don't worry about my boots. It's interesting just how he kind of snap backs, uh, or snaps back at her after they hit the ball, which they also hit the balls right next to each other again, which is just something that's funny to me. Uh, Kate gets stuck in the mud, which... I'm going to go with unrealistic, but hilarious. So we'll call it realistic to give the show a little bit of credit. Anthony has to like pull her out. She has to, I find it interesting that she asks for help specifically, right? Like she says like help, right? Like I just think it's an interesting word. And the whole point of this scene is it kind of breaks down the barriers. They have these barriers in front of each other and they're slowly breaking down. He has to help her. They have to like touch hands and stuff to make this work. Uh, he's like yanking her like Anthony, a little bit of finesse. You know, you don't have to like pull someone's shoulder out of the socket to get them out of the mud, uh, which is interesting. They, they, they're, 
they're bad at getting her out of the mud, so they fall over. And then her as they fall over, her leg just like gets out of the mud magically, which is awesome. And then they're both covered in mud, and the situation is so unreal and hilarious to them that they just start laughing. And like watching them laugh together is so nice because the the walls are coming down. That it, it's it's just lovely to see. They have a conversation as well uh, about. You know, why, now that we're past the formalities, now that we've had this moment, we've, like, physically touched each other, we've fallen in the mud, we've we've been palm oil competitors, we are past the formalities, like, why do you not like me? What can I do to gain your approval? And Kate says, I don't withhold it out of spite, dude. Like, it's not specifically spiteful. I'm not, I'm not saying no just for the sake of saying no. I have to look out for my sister. And Anthony's like, no, you don't. Like, I have to look out for my family. That's my job. And And Kate's like, wait a second. Like, I'm, I'm doing the same in every way that matters, which I noted as a similarity. Even if one is kind of societally expected and one isn't, they both have similar responsibilities to their family in these weird roundabout ways. So I'm trying to, because I know they're going to end up together in some way. I'm just trying to find these moments where it starts kind of clicking and making sense. And this is certainly uh, one of them. And then she hits his palm ball towards the memorial. And then he kind of just stares at it. And this is the point where, you know, I'm going to add another kind of trigger warning here. This is the part where I'm going to talk about my experience with these types of situations. And then we'll get back to the the, the rest of the episodes. So maybe skip ahead five minutes. I don't know if you don't want to hear me talk about my experience losing my father. Because this is where it gets the most relatable for me. So the situation at the memorial is that Kate hits the ball over to the memorial. Anthony kind of stares at it for a minute and knowing that he's super competitive and knowing that she's just kind of bested him, especially after that first bit when they approach the mud and saying like, no, we can't just pull the balls out because that, there's no honor in that. And Kate says, oh, so you do have honor, at least on the sporting field. So they're getting to know each other a little bit, uh, but she knows that she's rattled him, right? It's a dig like, hey, I've hit your ball even farther away from where we're trying to play the game and you know anthony doesn't want to lose and is going to go get it so when he doesn't she just kind of he just kind of stares in that direction a little bit and he doesn't go and get it and just turns to her and says like the game is over and leaves it and kind of stomps away like 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 he's traumatized like something something bad is being brought up and there's no way for kate to know this so she has the wherewithal and kind of the right idea like wait a second like let's not go attack anthony right now let's go see what's up and she walks over to this memorial, and that's what Anthony was staring at, just kind of like staring at this memorial kind of blankly, having something kind of come back into his brain that is bringing back some kind of poor memory. And I think it was really nice of Kate to take the time to not further dig into Anthony, actually kind of check this area out first, because that could have been really bad and it was really good on her part. And, and it's also giving Kate context for why Anthony is the, the way he is. You know what I mean? Like these little bits and pieces really help with that but this is the part where it gets kind of the most relatable to me so in my situation again skip ahead if you don't want to hear about it uh, my father was not stung by a bee or anything uh, but he worked in he worked as like a railroad supervisor type of person for one of the railways in Canada there's kind of two major ones and he kind of worked year-round building tracks fixing tracks administering stuff you know repairing train all kinds of stuff that he used to do around trains and the one thing about trains is that if you get hit by them uh, you probably die and that's what happened in this situation here and every once in a while so like you know anyone who loses a parent at any age goes through something some form of grief or kind of 
you know, upset, whatever. But the, the similarities for me is that it was sudden. It just kind of happened. It just kind of happened and, and you just find out about it and you just have to continue living your life. At least when your parents are kind of really old or they have, have cancer or something, it's terrible, but at least it's inevitable at that point. Like there's an inevitability to life and you get to at least... Maybe it's worse. Maybe overall it's worse in terms of like prolonged trauma. But there, there is something to be said for the fact that, you know, if someone has terminal cancer or someone's just really old, that there's at least some, some kind of inevitability to it. You don't expect to just wake up one day and have your parent like snap of the fingers, just be gone. And so that was very similar to me. But I related a lot to this kind of just staring blankly at stuff. Um, this experience for me has not turned me off of trains or anything, has not like made me scared of them. If anything, it makes me respect things more. Like you just gotta, if you're out there, be really careful around trains and train tracks and, and stuff because if you don't, things will happen and, and it's not good. So um, just be respectful of these types of things because they, they can do a lot of damage. And in this situation, there are still times, it's been more than a decade now, and there are still times where it's not bringing back kind of trauma in the same way that it is for Anthony, I don't think. But I'll just like stare. I'll be like near some train tracks or a train will be going by or, oh my God, when I was in the UK, when I was in the UK for a couple months and you just travel by train everywhere, there are some times I'd just be like standing at a train station and watching the trains like zoom through at 300 kilometers per hour. And you just, I just kind of get lost in it. You just kind of stare at it. And I would have these moments all the time where it's just like, I just tune out of what's happening. And I'm just like staring at this thing that can like, that can just do so much damage. And you almost like, like I'll, I'll have these anxiety, not panic attacks, right? Like I, I know what panic attacks are and that's not what I have. But I, I do have these like moments if I'm in a crowded train station and people are like lining up and there's a train like speeding up to a stop. I'm like, why are there so many, like get away. Like, why are we all standing here so close to this train that's speeding through? Like, why is this happening? Like, and I just have these moments where I like kind of irrationally just assume everyone's going to get hit by this train and, and die. Uh, like, like what happened to my dad. And so I just, there are moments like this where he's kind of staring at the statue. It happens to me when I'm in a crowded train station or if I'm just kind of stumbling along and I just don't know that I'm going to be near a train or kind of train tracks for the day. If I'm just like walking around like, oh, there's a train track there. I'm driving. It happens a lot when I'm driving and I'll just like drive into an area that has train tracks going through it. And I need to like take a minute to like, okay, like deep breath. We're going to go through an area that has trains. It doesn't bother me. It doesn't scare me or anything, but I do need a minute to kind of compose before I do it. And so that is, that is something I can relate to here in that this was very eloquently well done because there's no writing involved. There's no dialogue. There's no nothing. Just like having him stare in the direction of the memorial really kind of hit for me in a way that was really relatable because that's the exact same thing I do anytime I'm near kind of trains or train tracks or anything like that. So just a wonderful bit of writing here. And uh, I know trauma and these types of experiences aren't the same for everybody. Um, but at least for me, I kind of, obviously with the Viscount part of it and the, you know, we're just about to go to the flashback with the birth scene, which is just immeasurably fucked up. Like that level of trauma is nowhere near what I had to deal with. But this one specific part of kind of staring in the direction of the memorial is just, just something about that felt so real to me that I, it, it would, it would have been disingenuous to the audience of this podcast, I think, if I didn't kind of go through with talking about it and kind of my experience with that. So I hope you enjoyed this little insight as much as you could into the life of the person making this podcast for you.
this birth scene though this flashback is is incredibly fucked up and i don't want to linger on it just because you know we got to move to talking about the fun things in this episode but they, you know what they put it in the show it's incredibly important uh, there's so many things going on here First, Anthony gets called over to the birthing area, which at first seems weird because in this time, I don't think men were very involved in the births or like the, the men of the house. Obviously, the doctors are all men in this time. And you get you do get one kind of moment that I wanted to call out, and that's Daphne, or at least a younger version of Daphne, like singing to her siblings. I thought it was just like absolutely heartbreaking. But, you know, in a way, I felt at least one nice thing that was happening in this scene they they go into the room and there's so much shit just going on mama bridgerton is trying to get them to listen to her who she's having trouble she's also in the middle of giving birth which i imagine is a very kind of traumatic or at least emotionally intense and painful experience and she's trying to live in this new reality where her husband is not there he is not alive he's not here for her and he's not the viscount anymore which means anthony gets to choose all this stuff but anthony getting to choose means that she might not get the choice that she wants in this situation which is very hard for her, her to deal with and you can't fault her at all where she's like he's a child he cannot make these choices i am the lady of the house i am the adult like, let me do it. But again, these servants, there are rules to this system of who is in charge and who's not and who's the Viscount and who's not. And in this new world, you know, Mama Bridgerton is just a Mama Bridgerton, is no longer in a place of kind of prestige in decision making to the extent that she ever was being the, the wife of the Viscount. But Anthony's here and he has to make these fucked up decisions, man. He has to, he's immediately, he has already lost one parent and almost immediately then has to decide whether he wants to lose another parent or wants to save the, the, the baby that's about to be born, which is just incredibly fucked up. I can't even imagine having to do that. He's freaking out and has no idea what to do. Uh, Mama Bridgerton has this moment where she's saying that the choice is obvious. And I think later I can figure out which way she was leaning, but she's kind of talking about how Edmund loved her so much. And, and she's like, this choice is so obvious. Why, why don't they just ask me like this choice is obvious, but in the moment, I'm not sure what the obvious choice is. Does she want to be the one that doesn't get chosen so that she can die and go and be with her husband? Does she want and then save the baby, but does she want to leave her? But she does. If she chooses that, then she's also leaving her kids almost immediately without either parent. Like, oh, that's that's incredibly fucked up and strange and weird. And oh man, like that's so. There's so much trauma happening here that you can't fault anyone for the way they're reacting. But that it's just like a big pile of just even. It's just trauma on top of trauma, is what's happening here. Or. Does she want to live? Is, is the point of her saying, like, he loved me so much, he of course would choose me to live. There's no world in which Edmund wouldn't choose me to be the one that lived because he loved me. So I think with a later scene in this episode, you can kind of figure out what it is that she was hoping Anthony would choose here, that she wanted to choose for herself. But both choices are incredibly insane and, and, and crazy to have to think about. And, and the doctor says like, look, I'll do my best to say both, which is like, okay, good. Because that's what like, you should always do that. That should be the default position. And I, I think Anthony does this just out of sheer panic and just not being able to handle the situation. But also, it is the technical right thing to do, I think. And just, like, whatever she wants. Like, whatever. Like, she's the one giving birth. Like, she's she's in charge. Yep, whatever she wants. Which I think is the right choice. Like, give Lady Bridgerton the agency. She can choose. Um, that's fine. And Anthony is just going to have to live with both consequences. And thankfully, we know that the both Mama Bridgerton and Hyacinth make it out. And that's all good. 
and we're gonna get more detail in a later scene but at least we know at least we know watching this that the end result is that they both live so we don't have to believe that one of these terrible things is going to happen but just as a choice that anthony has to make here like i said you just you're just in charge now there is no kind of onboarding process you're just in charge and this decision is incredibly fucked up but the people in charge get to make this decision in this time which is also dumb but like he's got to make it and the servants need him to make it and so it's very the whole situation is is weird and strange and and but man if it doesn't give a good account of anthony and like why he is the way he is and thinks the way he does just exceptional exceptionally well done and well placed in this episode after all of that stuff we just talked about, it's really nice to head over to the Featheringtons where we get a, we just get to be comedic relief for, you know, 30 seconds while this scene is going on. There's so much fun stuff happening over here. <laughs> Lady Featherington is like teaching her how to fan her bosom to make, you know, Jack, the, the Lord Featherington, more aware. And she keeps saying Cousin Jack and he keeps saying stop calling her that or calling him that. And then she tells Prudence, make sure to laugh at all his jokes. And so uh, she pretends to be interested in travel or at least Lady Featherington is just leading the conversation. And Prudence has no idea what's happening. And Lord Featherington is like, wait, you're interested in travel. And she's like, oh, yes. Or at least I would be if I could travel anywhere. But mom says anything beyond Hampshire is positively uncivilized, which is which is just a very myopic way to view, I guess, for these ultra rich people like in London would be would be interesting but also i don't know where hampshire is like relative to all of their country homes but surely their country homes are beyond hampshire question mark i don't even know maybe the featheringtons don't have a, a country home uh, that they go to <laughs> but um mr featherington says something like yeah well america is you know farther away than hampshire but he says it like a fact and that's when prudence starts laughing which is just the wrong cue and so lord featherington gets up and like i'm gonna go see the cowpers or whatever i'm gonna do and mama featherington is just mad like stop fanning your bosom stop doing this stop doing that stop laughing everything sucks i hate everything and just a, a, a huge a huge fun comedic scene here Back with Anthony and Edwina, we have a double supervised, the, the 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 classical double chaperone maneuver with Lady Danbury and Lady Bridgerton here, and they're supervising this chat between Anthony and Edwina, and this chat is wonderful, it's lovely, it's kind, it's nice, and they're obviously both hamming it up for each other to try and impress each other, but also, this is a relationship I can root for, right? Like, they're saying, like, hey, uh, you know... There are, there are parts of my job where I would have to be gone for large periods of time away from my wife and child. And Edwina kind of responds with, you know what, that's fine. I want to support my husband in all of his endeavors. That's not to say I don't have a mind of my own. I'm going to have opinions. I'm going to have my own thoughts. But I am satisfied in the work that I do kind of alone. I read, I write or whatever she says. Like I can be satisfied with that, which allows me to be agreeable the way this marriage needs to be and anthony's like ah oh, this is rare and refreshing and this is just such a kind conversation lady danbury and mama bridgerton have these moments where they they kind of have these really like satisfied faces and then like worried faces when edwina brings up like i have my own thoughts and they both look really concerned which is like okay like calm down a little bit there like y'all have been through the system there's no need to be concerned about this we're gonna be fine anthony makes a fun joke about the ledgers and that he hasn't read anything but the ledgers and that's the 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 funniest joke <laughs> the funniest joke that, that could have possibly been said there and edwina starts talking about her stories i'm like this is perfect because i read a lot of books and i need someone to tell my stories too and you like listening to stories and ah oh, this is just adorable 
after the conversation, though, Kate is just in the way again. <laughs> just upstairs. And Edwina comes in with an A-plus report card. Hey, Kate, this conversation was awesome. It was amazing. We had a good time. There was no awkward pauses. There was no drastically terrible lulls or whatever she says. And, and Kate's immediately like, well, well, if the conversation felt one-sided, if he was a bit of an asshole, if he came across as a bit of a, a jerk, and Edwina's like, wait, 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 hold up. It wasn't. Like, didn't I just tell you that this was a great conversation that I had? And I, I, I know I keep marking this down. It's clear now. There is no way Kate is reacting to any of this other than some sort of her own feelings for Anthony. There's still 10% looking out for her sister, but now we know for sure she feels something for Anthony here because there's no way Edwina comes back with a report card on a conversation that's like an A+. That was also supervised by Lady Danbury and Mama Bridgerton, right? Who, I, to be fair, are not unbiased arbiters in this situation, but neither is Kate either. And so there's no way that, that Edwina comes back with this good of a report card for the situation, and Kate seems still so against it, other than she has her own feelings there. But again, I'm just happy that this went well for Edwina and Anthony, because in another world, I would totally ship them. They seem like they'd be awesome together. Over in the study, we get a lovely scene between Anthony and Daphne, and this is where Daphne is just the, the hyper-competent one who's like been through this whole process and has been married and genuinely really loves her husband and their marriage. And she has all this advice for Anthony. They're arguing over Edwina and, and, and Daphne knows something is up with Kate. Daphne kind of has this inkling that it's not perfect and that Anthony doesn't feel the way he should about this for this marriage to really work, but she's having a hard time kind of getting this out. And Anthony pretty fairly up until this point is like, what are your objections, Daphne? She's kind. She's beautiful. She's well-read. She's interesting. She'd be a great Viscountess. And she, he says, and she's even wise, which of, of course being wise is the last thing that matters to any of these fucking men in this system. But she is even wise, which is a huge draw. And Daphne like has to think about it for a second and, and kind of concedes the, the point on this approach. Like, okay, you know what? I don't have any actual objections. That all seems good. But I shall describe love in the most bonkers of ways to see if Anthony truly feels this way. And I did not write down a word Daphne said here. However, it went something like, is this the person that when you look at them, your heart turns into the light of a thousand suns and you have no option but to put your lips on their lips. And the second you part from one another, you desire nothing than be, to be back in each other's arms. And she just goes on about this, which is a bonkers way to describe love. It's kind of true to just the chemistry her and the Duke had from last season. So I'm, I'm vibing with it. Uh, last season, I was really into their relationship. So fair. But also, this is the thing you need to say to get through to Anthony, because she concedes in her own head that, that I don't have any real objections that he is going to relate to. So I need to, like, fuck his brain up. I need to bamboozle his entire brain. And Anthony, who's either not listening or or just doesn't care, I'm going to lean towards just doesn't care, goes, yeah, I couldn't have described it better myself. And Daphne knows this is bullshit. And has to like, now she's, a, I guess, hopefully later going to find a third approach to this. But then has to be like, yeah, I guess, I guess if that's true, brother, if that is really true, if that's truly how you feel, wink, 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 knowing that it's not, then maybe Edwina is the one for you. Which I, I just love Daphne in this scene. Uh, she's incredible. Uh, everything she says made sense. Her approach made sense. And it's a, it's a little good bit of what Anthony should have been doing in the last season for her.
All of these conversations as well are being eavesdropped on by Lady Danbury and Mama Bridgerton, which I don't know of what the ethics are in this day and age about, you know, eavesdropping on what is, I guess, a private conversation. Because Daphne and Anthony are allowed to be... Because I get the chaperoning bit, and the eavesdropping's on purpose. So the ethics of eavesdropping in the parlor earlier when they were talking to each other, totally fine. But this is a relationship between the Sharma sisters, who... who, who sh who are alone in a room together and should think they have some kind of privacy. And Daphne and Anthony, who are in a, a room alone together, who are allowed to be, obviously. And they are, they probably expect some kind of modicum of privacy here. So I'm not sure about the ethics of the eavesdropping here. But Eloise kind of walking through this situation allowed it to be funny. So that I didn't have to think about kind of the ethical implications of whether I agree or disagree with this eavesdropping here. After the big defeat for Lady Featherington earlier, she had to go through the, the shameful humiliation of organizing a dinner. I guess venison is what uh, Lord Featherington wanted for the Cowpers who are over. And you know what? This might be the first scene where I don't hate Cressida Cowper. I don't know if I'm fully invested in this Featherington storyline, but I'm certainly not not invested. And this dynamic is just very strange. There's so many things going on here. Penelope is like playing the person who's trying to ask questions for gossip for Lady Whistledown. Mama Featherington is trying to kind of take down the Cowpers at all costs to make Prudence look good. Prudence is just, you know, monkey with tambourines in her head or whatever, just like la-di-da, just is not picking up on any cues, is not, you know, not interrupting at the right spot, not saying the right things, laughing at the wrong jokes, you know, insisting that she wants to sing, which is not what Lady Featherington had in mind. So all of these dynamics are fun. The Cowpers are also in their own dynamics where I think they don't like the Featheringtons very much but this kind of prospect of being with Lord Featherington is interesting also I'm not really convinced that it makes sense that Cressida Cowper doesn't have a match yet there's got to be some kind of rich guy that fulfills her needs around that's better than this new Lord Featherington which I find interesting there's also some wild lines here where, where they're like is that a new dress I think it's Penelope to, to Cressida Cowper because it's from the new modiste and Penelope's trying to figure out the modiste situation because she was there earlier with the with the bosomage problem of the old modiste and so uh, it's already been established like, of course it's a new dress like these like has it not been established already that these people get new dresses for everything just last season your own family had like this big moment where the other two sisters were like, how could I possibly wear a used dress to the ball? So I don't know. I, I think the question is just for information, but it seemed like a strange one to me. Like, of course it's a new dress. I don't know what you just assume it's a new dress unless you're told otherwise. <laughs> Prudence is just not catching at all, which is awesome. And then at the end, Cressida's going on a promenade with Lord Featherington, which I, I again, I'm not sure I'm super invested into this, but I like the idea of Cressida going on a promenade with Lord Featherington just to mess up Mama Featherington's plans. Because she's just, I think she's over-exaggerating her problems a little bit here. And she she's not really aware she lives an extraordinarily privileged life. If, if one that does involve eating a lot of potatoes as of late. We get a really small scene with Colin and Benedict. Where Benedict is freaking out about his acceptance into art school, which is... Again, he's from a really rich, wealthy, prestigious family. Of course, that's the whole... That's like the English system, man. Like that's that's like one of England's biggest exports is like this, this system of prestige and like this upper class that just gets into everything all the time simply because they are in that aristocracy. So I don't really know what Benedict's worried about. But uh, Colin has this, I'm going to call it weed tea, but it's not weed or marijuana or whatever. It's some kind of 
not opium, but some kind of like LSD type of thing. It'll, it enhances the senses is what I'm assuming is going to go on here. And he pours a little bit into the tea for Benedict. And Benedict doesn't feel things right away. So he pours the whole thing in. And it's just a very funny kind of comedic break point here. Because later we're going to get super high Benedict. And that's going to be hilarious. Kate and Eloise are outside, and another really kind of low-key interesting thing here, Kate's kind of staring out at the world a little bit deep in thought, wonder what she's thinking about. Uh, she asks Eloise a question, and Eloise is like, is the question that, that I made the third wicket two inches... <laughs> um, Two inches less wide, two inches thinner than last year. Why, yes, I did do that. And Kate has some questions for Eloise about Anthony and his mood and going to see the grave. And Eloise kind of explains like, nah, that wasn't you. Don't don't take it personally. That's just how, always how he gets around the, the grave. The, the mood was not on your account, which I just like from Eloise. But also back to what I was talking about earlier, kind of felt really relatable. The mood certainly isn't on her account at all. Eloise then has a conversation like, hey, Kate, you're not married. Can I not be married? Is that a fun thing to do? Are you enjoying life being not married? Because I would really like to not be married. And Kate has a pretty realistic view of it. I, I really enjoyed Kate's kind of honesty here, but also so much of this is like she's denying her own feelings about Anthony, but she's not unaware of the situation. She understands that society is not going to like her as an unmarried woman. She acknowledges the challenges and it would have been so easy for her kind of to Eloise, just tell her what she wants to hear. You're at you're you're at her house. She's a guest, and it would have been easy for Kate to say like, "Oh, it's lovely, it's great, yeah, no, no worries, whatever." But I think she does the right thing here and is is honest and reasonable about her kind of experience with it, which I I thought was noble of Kate to do. Just want to knock on too from Eloise, or I believe it's Eloise that says that rather seems to be society's flaw, not a woman's. Just fantastic line. Yep, just just end credits. This episode's over. What a line. We get a moment now where Anthony goes to his father's grave, and I'm not sure why. I guess it's just kind of acknowledging it that it's probably expected that he goes to visit at least one time, but also uh, it, it's good that he's kind of going through the motions and at least going and acknowledging that this happened, that there's some work to do, that he's got to work through it. And I just like the moment that he heads over there. The problem is that just instead of getting any kind of healing from it, he just has another moment here where we get another flashback. This trauma is kind of coming all back to him. And this scene is even, the last scene was fucked up. I think this scene is more fucked up here. Violet Bridgerton, Mama Bridgerton, on the couch here, looks absolutely, I put in my notes, just, just messed up with grief. Like, her portrayal of grief is very well done because grief isn't something that's just completely 100% like you're just a sobbing wreck. It's kind of that that blankness behind the eyes, that staring into nothing, almost like you're just a zombie in this world full of humans. And that portrayal of grief was very well done. Anthony here is doing his, like, I think Anthony is doing a wonderful job here. This is clearly just a couple of days, maybe a week after after either A, the father died or Hyacinth was born. I'm not sure what the timeline was between, you know, the father dying and Hyacinth being born, but she was pretty pregnant in that scene where he died at the beginning with the bee sting. And so I'm assuming it's not been much more than two or three weeks. And he is saying like, hey, come can you come to family dinner we miss you we're, we're trying to we're trying to be together as a family like i'm trying to look after the siblings and she kind of tells him not to talk about family dinner that she's doing her best which is fair enough but also her best is like 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 
Man, she needs to tell this to someone. It's almost too bad that therapy didn't exist in this time because this is what therapists are good for. Also, if you're listening to this podcast, like let's all together end the stigma about therapy. I've gone to therapy before for this kind of situation, and it's amazing. Therapists are awesome. They rock. Go to therapy for any reason. Like they're they're professional listeners that will help you kind of emotionally handle your problems. They're amazing. Anyways, just wanted to put my my vote of confidence out there for therapy. I know a lot of people don't believe in it or whatever. Like, go. It's amazing. It's a bit expensive, but maybe your insurance covers it or whatever. It's amazing. But she doesn't have a therapist. She has Anthony. And so she's going to talk to Anthony. And she has this moment, which I'm glad she's saying it out loud because it's true. And she needs to work through this. But this is the most fucked up thing you can say to your son, who's ostensibly now like the man of the house who's in charge and who's already gone through all of this shit with like the decision earlier in your rooms and all this stuff. Right. And she says, you know, I, I wake up, I bathe, I have breakfast, like going through the motions, like she's a robot, all that. And then I go to the nursery and I see Hyacinth in the nursery and I'm mad. She didn't kill me so I could be with my husband. It's just like, what the f like, what, why are you saying that to your son? Like that's an inside thought. Like we say that out loud to anybody else except for your actual children. Like, hey, I know your dad died, but I've been thinking lately, just wandering through the nursery, that I wish your infant sister killed me too so that you'd be parentless and that I would be able to be with my husband, which I'm not holding against her because grief is a grief and trauma are fucked and like they will get you and they will make you think these things, right? So I'm not holding it against her, but you don't need to say it out loud to Anthony because that is... Man, that is unreal. This flashback kind of brings out, and this is also just so hard, because at the end of this flashback, what is Anthony kind of faced with? His mom coming to sit down at this at this grave too. And with Anthony, he, he seems better. Obviously, a lot of time has passed, but he still seems like he's grieving. But with her, she seems a lot more cheerful. She seems like she seems like the, the an entire new life has passed for her since this happened. And um, she has some wise words to say, but it's kind of hard to listen to them after the scene we just saw. But she says things like, just because you're dedicated to the family doesn't mean there shouldn't be room for love, which is a great line. Like, hey, your father took his job as the Viscount seriously, but also loved really deeply, and you should do that. This is where Anthony says out loud, which, I mean, I think he started falling in love with Sienna there a little bit at the end. I know I got this email saying that I should let Sienna go. I will not let Sienna go. As much as I start to like Kate and Anthony, Sienna will always have a place in my heart uh, for Anthony here. Um, but he says, like, look, love shall have no place in my marriage. But why? Why? Because he saw the damage it did. It is the, like, mm, this is so true to life and something kind of, I, I'm a fan of love. I'm a super romantic person. Like, I'm just, like, a hopeless romantic kind of guy, right? And that's just, like, the I'm not I'm not one of those kind of walls-up, like, emotionless people. Like, I, I will just immediately, like, hop into relationships and think they're the best things ever. And, oh, like, it, it, it's, like, great. But also, there's a lot of trauma that goes with it, right? And it's not even... It's not even on a big level like someone dying. Like if you date someone for three or four years and then break up, that's really traumatic. That breakup process is hard for a lot of people and it takes a lot of time and there's a lot of trauma there that you have to work through. And that that's, that is the cost of love, right? All of these types of shows, Bridgerton included, are trying to tell you that love is worth it. 
that love is the thing that is better than anything else. But love always comes with a cost. Love blinds you to a whole bunch of things. You will you will take a lot more shit from the people you love than you deserve in a lot of cases. Love will often blind your decisions, like right, like you will not act rationally. That's why in so many movies and stuff. Um, people take each other's family members as hostages because that's a good way to get a really rational person to not act rationally is if their family's in danger, right? So like love is something, it's a it's worth pursuing and I'm fully on board with this. It's worth pursuing. It's worth jumping headfirst into. It's like a beautiful, wonderful, absolutely incredible thing to strive for. However, much like the trains I talked about earlier, we need to respect it, right? Love is not purely this amazing thing that is just amazing. It has a cost and that cost is the pain, right? At some point it ends. At some point something ends, either you die or someone else, unless this is the notebook and you kind of die together, right? At the exact same time, someone has to live without the other person. Someone is gonna be in a great deal of pain as the cost for the love, right? And that happens on a big scale, on a small scale. Like I mentioned with like, even just breakups can be very traumatic and, and hard and difficult. And I like that this show is acknowledging that through Anthony, like, hey, love is still worth pursuing. That is the message of the show, I believe. But Anthony is there saying, hey, there's a cost to this. And I do not want to pay that cost. But not, not only do I not want to pay that cost, I don't want, I don't want, ha I don't want, I saw what happened. And I do not want someone to fall in love with me so that I get stung by a bee or whatever. And they do what you did. Because that was awful and not worth it at all. And I like that they're at least acknowledging that there's a cost to it. Because I think too many people in real life and, and, and too many TV shows and whatever just go like, yada, yada, love's the best thing ever, blah, 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 blah. When, when there is a lot to acknowledge here as a cost for the love, which is a real true thing here. But again, I think Mama Bridgerton has the right of it. This is... This scene would have been much better placed, you know, with an intermittent scene after the flashback, I think. Um, but her saying, like, look, yes, it sucked. Yes, it was traumatic. Yes, I didn't do enough. Yes, if I could go back, I would do it all over again. However, I would choose that again. I would go through all the pain again. I would go through everything again, the heartbreak, the bee sting, the birth, all of it, to have been with my husband again, which... I just liked, I just liked this whole scene so much because it gives context and clarity to everything Anthony's about while taking nothing away from Mama Bridgerton. I just think the scene is slightly awkwardly placed, but otherwise is a great referendum on love where the show has a clear message that I agree with, but also acknowledges the true costs and faults and everything with that approach, which I think is great that the show is doing. Anthony also takes a moment here to acknowledge how he is perceived, which I think is also so important, right? Like, like as an extension of that, that kind of thought he's having or his kind of uh, referendum here on love, he's like, I cannot be the cause of such pain, regardless of how cruel or half-hearted it makes me seem to other people. And I like that he acknowledges again that he, he is the way he is. He's doing what he's doing. He has the approach he has. However... I understand too that that makes me seem cruel and half-hearted and that's not true. So like you can believe I'm cruel and half-hearted, you can everyone else can believe it, but that doesn't make it true. Right? The truth is something different and just believing in a, in in something false does not make it true, which I think is something that everyone in 2022 should, you know, think about a little bit. Like, hey, just because something is isn't true 
just believing that it's true does not make it true. And I like that the show is kind of talking to us about that as well. Just, uh, I think as a, as an individual scene, this might be one of my favorite scenes of TV that I've seen in a very long time. But where it is in the episode is just kind of off for me. However, just if I think about this scene again in a year, after if I don't rewatch Bridgerton and I go into Bridgerton season three, and I'll remember this scene. I think I think this scene is everything that peak Bridgerton is, and that it's not just this like shitty kind of Hallmark romance bullshit show. That there is a lot of depth here to explore. There's a lot of things to talk about. And that's what, I, that's what I like about this podcast is like, I'm here to meme on the show. I'm fully here to meme on the show. I am also like a 26 year old white guy is not the right person to be doing a solo podcast on this show, but there's so much here to explore and dive into if you're willing to do it. And I, I'm glad that I get to do it. And I just love this scene for that to give me so much to kind of explore with you guys, but also appreciate here. Just ex exquisitely done. It's dinner time now, and Benedict is high as a kite. This is so funny. He's spilling the wine. He's like, oh, my God, these lights, they're so pretty. We sit amongst the stars, everybody. And Anthony is like, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And he's just so clearly high, and he has that moment where he, like, tucks his hands into his face, like, oh, what have I done? I've spilled the wine. Whoopsie. And it's just so good. Edwina... Uh, is seated next to Anthony, obviously, and she's talking to him about blah, blah, this and blah, blah, that. And Anthony is just staring directly at Kate, the way she eats, the way she talks, the way she moves. And like, I, what are the other people at this table doing? The only focus of this dinner is on Anthony and Edwina. Later, La Lady Danbury is going to kind of trap Anthony into a proposal. And they're not watching this. Like, no one has got, except for Daphne. Daphne is onto this shit. Every other person is like, what is happening? Why? Like, ooh, what? What's going on? Like, it's kind of like Arthur Weasley in Harry Potter trying to count the muggle money as if normal money or wizarding money. It, it, the wizarding money is a weird system, but it's also just numbers. And he's looking at like a 10 pound note and can't figure out how much it's worth. And it's like, they're just numbers. And you know numbers. Like, it's the same kind of thing where they're just like, la-di-da, what's going on? Oh, Anthony's staring at Kate. Now's the perfect time to not notice it. So this, this scene kind of just makes it super obvious that Anthony has the hots for Kate, or is at least finding her more interested, interesting than Edwina. But you know what? Props to Daph for being onto it. Uh, Lady Danbury decides this is the best time for Anthony to propose. And I'm not often critical of Lady Danbury, but you're allowed to triple check. And I actually think, to be fair, if she had triple checked, Anthony thinks he's going to propose. Right? But then kind of opts out at the last second so i think he would have said yes anyway but let's triple check this like let's double triple be sure like hey if i propose the toast and i talk about like and are there any other questions we should be asking if i do that bit anthony you're gonna you're gonna do it right like i'm not gonna put myself out there unless i'm not gonna throw the basketball up unless you're gonna alley-oop it and we are allowed to like have anthony on screen be like yeah i'm definitely gonna alley-oop it because it kind of makes lady danbury seem like she's thrown off her game and she does not seem like somebody who would be thrown off her game at this moment, but she is because this is so awkward. Anthony starts by making an awesome joke about Paul Mall, the funniest thing Anthony's ever said since the, uh, you know, ledger joke from a couple of scenes ago. And then he freezes up something. And I, my guess is the way he was staring at Kate. He's going to say later that it was his brothers or something dumb, which is not true. 
but he kind of looks at Edwina and says, like, I have another question for you. And then he kind of nopes out and he's like, can you please not tell anyone else I'm bad at Pall Mall? And it's like, oh, like not only is that not what people wanted, it's not what people were expecting. The life has been drained from the party. It's also the second Pall Mall joke. He was doing so good. He was being so funny. And then he had like back to back same jokes, which is weird, but man alive, like just, just big kind of womp. Do I have my womp horn kind of hooked up to this? I do. I've had my soundboard. For those of you who don't know, uh, I'm a partnered Twitch streamer, and I spend a lot of my time online uh, playing video games in front of people, which you may find spectacularly nerdy, but should that come as a surprise, I'm not really sure. But I have so many, like, I didn't realize this was hooked up. Okay. We're going to be using the soundboard a lot more. I got, like, 25 different sounds on here. Anyways, uh, yeah, womp horns are coming out for Anthony, because that was tragic. Kate, who just a second earlier was like, yeah, actually, he's about to propose. So, like, we're really freaking tired and we got to go to bed right now. I'm actually going to sleep on the spot. Uh, just looks so relieved at this moment that a Anthony bungled it up. So, uh, you know, a poor play from Anthony here. Y if you're going to nope out of it, you got to be sure you're going to nope out of it before you get to that moment. But at least, you know, he made a funny Paul Mall joke along the way. His second annual loss, which is not going to be repeated. In the debrief between Kate and Edwina, Edwina is being unreasonably hard on herself which makes a lot of sense for how much pressure is on the situation she wants this marriage this is what she wants this is what she's gonna do and not having it signed sealed and delivered by the time everyone gets here is problematic for a few ways right or for a few reasons one it's not signed sealed and delivered that's problem number one a one is is that that's not done yet but B, it makes it harder because there's more people here that Anthony might fall in love with now. But C, it makes her look bad because, and this is dumb, but this is definitely how people in gossip work. They're going to wonder why the diamond of the season came to the house of the most eligible bachelor of the season and they're not engaged. What happened? And of course, no one's going to think it's Anthony's fault. They're all going to blame Edwina that something's wrong with her. And she's being unreasonably hard on herself. This is all Anthony's fault. Um, although I don't really blame Anthony either. He definitely should not be marrying Edwina at this point. He should be taking his time, like Mama Bridgerton said. Right? But this is how people are going to think about it, which is which is not good. It's also not helpful that Lady Danbury didn't kind of triple check and kind of forced Anthony into that position in that moment. Kate just Kate is really good at just like going to the logical extreme without taking any of the steps or like she takes the train from like normalville to just extreme ville I'm, I'm not doing a good metaphor here but like doesn't take a stop she's just like i knew he would only end up hurting you like okay kate like no you like what what is this like did anthony hurt edwina yes is that entirely his fault no like it, it was lady danbury who kind of put him in the position to propose there anyway and also you don't even want her to marry the guy like this like whatever whatever kate like, i'm not with kate in this moment like she just jumps to the right like so now you're questioning my judgment it's like no that's not what happened from the first episode or the second episode and now it's like oh yeah yeah i knew the whole time he would really hurt you it's like okay come on like like, come, like, let's actually, like, look at the situation reasonably. And y is it Anthony's fault? Yes. Is he intentionally trying to hurt her? No, that is not what's happening here, Kate. Come on. Uh, but Edwina, like, thinking, oh, it's heartbreaking. Like, I thought he liked me. Like, oh, man. Just, this is the problem. I will say this is the problem. In real life with 90 Day Fiance, and in, in Bridgerton World, three days is not enough time to find out if you're compatible. And I'm sure this kind of stuff happens all the time.
Back with Benedict, he's still high as a kite, and he's doing his finger-painting stuff. The only problem is, this has clearly been pre-painted, which makes sense, but his fingers moving across the canvas don't actually move the paint anywhere, or add any new paint to it, so we, like, can we CGI some paint on here? At least make his fingers that are clearly visually covered in paint. Actually put paint onto this canvas. Colin, Colin walks in and is like, oh my goodness, what is going on? Uh, Benedict, who has this little monologue, about how, you know, the, the people at the art school, are they're not in charge of art. I'm going to make my own art, and it's going to be beautiful without them. Immediately kind of eats shit when he finds that he's actually in the art school, and Cullen's like, yo, you know what? Didn't you just say they sucked, and those people were really dumb and like, aren't the arbiters of taste? And Benedict, who's high as a kite, I thought he was going to fall out this window. I thought he was going to fall out this window. Like, opens the window, and... <laughs> He tells the world that they're going to experience his talents or whatever. And it's just an awesome moment. It's weird to see a man so clearly in his 30s play someone who's meant to be in their mid-20s, who's also high as a kite, who just got into art school, which is very unusual for this kind of time and family, kind of yell that out a window when he's super high. Like, that whole situation is just awesome, and I really enjoyed it. We also get little bits of Eloise going in on Colin about how, like, if I have to hear about your fucking grease trip one more time, I will stab you. Like, that was just awesome from Eloise. I love that Colin's one place to just tell everyone about his grease trip, which would be interesting because I would assume not a lot of people have been to Greece. And then he kind of he kind of gives away the game. He's here to see Miss Thompson. That's why he came back. He couldn't get Marina, who's now Lady Crane, out of his head. So that's why he came back. And again, the show's not hand-holding us. Just a little reminder. Like, hey, remember this person? Like, she exists. And Colin's thinking about her. And if you want to know, go watch season one. But this is enough for you. And I, I enjoyed that. Lady Whistledown is out here doing favors for the Modiste because she, she is she is dunking. Like, do we need to dunk on the new Modiste? This is ridiculous. Like, hey, that that older that old Modiste is old but very capable. This new Modiste is like pushing people's boobs out of their dresses. Like, what is going on here? Like, come on, Penelope. Like, there can be two Modiste. There's a lot of people that need to make a lot of dresses. And like with the invite situation, you need a new dress made in hours before you go to these balls and stuff like. We, we there are room for two modistes to be on the the same street. She then goes to the modiste immediately after this pamphlet is pu is published, and other people are walking in behind her to be like, "Hey, we can help each other here." Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Like I'm Lady Whistledown. Very interesting that she outs herself. Uh, prediction gone. I thought it was going to be Colin who figured out that it was Lady Whistledown. Spoiler alert: It is the modiste who was going to predict that, not me. But she actually outs herself like, "Hey, I'm Lady Whistledown." I can help your business. See what's happening here? I kind of, the booby modiste over there, the one with the low cut dresses, yeah, she's not the fun one anymore. I made you good here. I had to say you were old so that it wasn't too obvious. But look at this business. And the one lady in the back's like, I need your master expert opinion on this dress. <laughs> Just really hamming it up and selling it here. Uh, and then the modiste says, yeah, I'll help you. I can help you out here. Interesting. We'll see how this goes. I, I like where this is going, though. Back over at Aubrey Hall, we are with Kate and Anthony again. Anthony shuts the door on the dog, which is, you know what? My, my Anthony score in this moment was a zero. You don't, like, look at the dog and shut the door. Like, what are we doing? Like, that is just, that is, that is just a crime. I think Anthony's committed a crime. He needs to go to jail. He needs to go to jail for one night and think about what he's done. There's this beautiful shot of the rolling hills of England. And I just wanted to say, for those of you who've never been to England, the rolling hills are that beautiful. Like, they are immaculate and i understand there are there are very different areas of kind of hillage in england i spend a lot of my time in bristol 
kind of in the Somerset area, I believe it's called, like S-O-M-E-R-S-E-T, Somerset, I think that's the area. And, you know, I go on a lot of hikes and walks and like for miles and miles and miles and miles and miles. It's just like the exact same view, kind of untouched by modern stuff if you're looking at it from a distance far enough. And it, it just really is that beautiful. Kate stumbles upon Anthony. And I, how are they allowed to be alone together? I still don't understand this. Is this like a loophole because he's in charge of this house and you can just do whatever you want on your own property and no one cares? Like, is this that because they accidentally stumbled into each other, it's fine? Like, it's weird to me that they don't... Like, I guess, I guess it's all based on whether you get found out or not. Um, but they're alone together. Kate and Anthony are discussing kind of the proposal and how it went down. Uh, Anthony's like, Donna, don't worry. I'm still going to propose. You know, last night my brother was being dumb and, you know, the dinner wasn't right and everyone was a little off, which is just bullshit. But yeah, it makes sense for him to say out loud. Kate's like, look, you hurt her. She's sad. She's not happy this morning, which fair enough. Right. And he's like, ah, don't worry. I'm going to I'm going to make this right. I'm going to I'm going to make sure that things are good. She says, all you're doing is like messing with an impressionable young lady. And again, are we forgetting that it was Lady Danbury who kind of put Anthony in that moment? Maybe he was going to put himself in that moment. But he, if he just didn't do that and didn't propose at the dinner, this would not be nearly as big of a deal, I don't think. So I'm putting at least partial blame here on Lady Danbury, not all on, on Anthony. And then Anthony says something and Kate immediately jumps again. It's like, now you're questioning my judgment or whatever she says. It's like, no, no, I'm like, Kate needs to work on not jumping to like the biggest extreme of the logic. Like there's a whole bunch of steps in between and we don't need to jump to the last one. I, I like it for Kate as a character because it makes sense for her character, but just annoys the hell out of me. And then... I actually, I actually, of course, this was how this episode was going to end here. I actually screamed at my screen. Oh, no, fuck a B. No. And I wrote it in my notes that way, too. That B shows up and I was like, oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. Because this is going to trigger all kinds of PSD. And Jonathan Bailey plays this so well. In the, and the B is like not on her, not on the throat the same way, but kind of in the same area, like right by her heart, right in the danger zone still. This isn't on her ankle or anything. And again, these people don't know about allergies and stuff, right? Like they might assume that the proximity was the problem and that if he got stung on the ankle, it wouldn't have been an issue. And that like, this will happen to everybody. Like, it doesn't seem like Anthony knows that this is something that doesn't happen to everyone. So he immediately jumps to like, oh no, this killed my dad. Get it off, get it off, get it off. Don't let it sting you. And then what? what is, she's like, no, what are you talking about? It's a bee. And then it stings her and oh my goodness, it stings her and she knows she's fine. She's clearly been stung by a bee before. It's fine. It's all good. And, and she's trying to say like, Lord, it's fine. It's fine. And, and he is just kind of freaking out about it, which makes a lot of sense. And to her credit, like the grave scene earlier, she realizes she doesn't know why he's freaking out, but she doesn't can like this kind of this, this game they're playing with each other and the antagonisticness of all of it is, 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 is kind of for show, but also very specific to Edwina's relationship. But in that moment where she sees he's freaking out, she doesn't go in on him harder, which I like, like she could go, she could have easily been like, are you fucking idiot? It's a bee sting. Like what the fuck's wrong with you? Like, why are you worried about this bee sting? But instead she sees that he's freaking out and she does her best to try and calm him down. And she does this in what is, I'm assuming the least kind of safe way in this society by like take, they do like a little heart infinity chain here, which I find just adorable, but they're definitely touching bosoms. Uh, so she takes his hand and puts it on her like 
not boob, like it's not it's not like a grab or anything. It's kind of on the top of the chest, like just under the collarbone, which would be inappropriate for this time. It also is just like a it's a visible area where this sting is, which you know is a is fair enough. And then uh, he he still doesn't calm down, so she puts her hand in the same spot on his chest, like hey, it's fine. Like look look, we're both the same here. We're both unharmed. It's fine. Everything's good. All is well. They start calming down a little bit, but their faces are getting closer together. And then they almost kiss. And in this moment, you want them to kiss so bad because you know that they like each other. And I love this slow burn way more for them than I did. Like for Daphne and Simon, the the, the big kind of have sex all the time thing made a lot of sense because that season was really about the self-discovery and like the sexual awakening that was happening. But this isn't like that, right? Like it's clear Kate is way more versed in at least understanding sex stuff more than the average person who's never been married in this society does and anthony we've seen him have sex with lots of people so he gets it too and so like this slow burn makes a lot more sense with this couple and when they didn't kiss it was it was hard to watch because he's like oh no like this would solve so many problems if you just acknowledge your feelings but then they both have to run away anthony runs away to cool off because this is this whole thing is very horny like after the initial kind of bee sting stuff this whole thing is like you we're meant to watch it and be romantically involved, right? Or at least interested in this romance. And so they're running. He runs off to a tree and kind of has to calm down. And he has to calm down from the beasting. Like, okay, it's fine. She's not dead, right? So I'm assuming his is a lot less about the almost kissing, although that's probably part of it. And then part of it's like the calm down from the trauma. But for for Kate, you know she's going to the pillar thing and calming down and being like, that was what just a what just happened like what happened to him why was he freaking out but b i almost kissed him and i think in i think the way this goes in there is like i almost kissed him and i didn't hate the idea of it and i wanted to do it right like i wanted that to happen and she's gonna have to wrestle with that now because now it's unambiguous like up until this point i've identified the points at which i think that they're starting to kind of fall for each other at this point 4k is unambiguous now they almost kissed his hand was on her kind of not even bosom, but like bosomy area by the collarbone or whatever. And that is like, that is, that is pretty much third base for this society at this point, especially if you're not married, especially if you don't have a chaperone. So that's all going on here. And I like, I like that because Bridgerton at the end of the day is a pretty horny show, right? That's why we're all watching. Like the sex appeal of the show is part of the reason we're watching it. Same with Outlander, same with all these other shows that have a little bit of sex appeal in them. Right. And, and so it was nice to get a little bit of that in a different way from season one, in a more complicated way where it's not just that there's all these other kind of weird fucking things with the bee going on, too. Uh, and I like having to untangle this all. But just what an end of the episode. Just oh, so good. And that's it. That's all, everybody. The longest podcast episode of the season so far. This happened last season, too, where they just get longer and longer because there's more stuff in retrospect you need to talk about. But I hope you enjoyed the deep dive. If you did, you know, check out the Facebook, check out the Patreon, leave the reviews, all of that stuff. Thank you so much for listening. I hope to see you on Gmail, on Twitter, wherever, the Facebook group with your opinions. I'd love to know what you thought about the episode. Next up, we're going to be live with episode number four. Make sure to tune into the Facebook group to hear my instant reaction to episode four. After episode four, I'm bringing on a guest host to do a mid-season check-in to kind of talk about the first half of the season before we dive deep into episode five and kind of take on the second half of the season thank you so much for listening and we will see you in the next one